0: Get on in there, see what all the excitement is about. It's going to be so much fun.
1: If you have a voice and you have a message, you want to put it out, you can do it now.
0: Hey guys, it's Kathy Heller. Welcome back to the podcast. So, today we have Paul Feig on the show and it was just one of the most delightful conversations. He's such a sweet person. He's such a happy person from such a genuine place, I think because he loves people so much and so it was just so much fun to talk to him. I can't wait to dive into that. I also want to let you know about something really, really cool. Speaking of happiness, I think a lot of days that go by in our life, we are waiting for something to happen so that we can feel happy. We're waiting for a certain email to come in. We're waiting for a certain opportunity. We're waiting for some amount of money. We're waiting for someone to get something or say something or apologize for something. And truly, we have an ability to find so much joy and so much energy without waiting. And When we find that real sense of authentic integrity, that authentic power, that authentic bliss that comes from within us, that comes from the lightness of our own being, oh my goodness, when that happens, we start to become like a magnet for the most incredible life you could possibly imagine and things start happening that feel so synchronistic I teach a program called Abundant Ever After that is my signature sauce. It's kind of the the thing I feel I do best, and it has gotten rave reviews, and right now it is actually available. And what we're doing is we're offering it early. We usually offer this in January, and those of you who get into it now are going to be able to start now, to get ahead of it now, to start watching and going through the content. And then you'll also get a lot of extra bonuses, like extra sessions and beautiful live calls and a whole bunch of things, not to mention, you will be getting it at a discount. If you'd like to check it out, you can go to kathyheller.com slash join, and you can find your way into that feeling of abundance. And I have a feeling you're going to DM me and say, you're right. This is one of the coolest things that I've done. So if you want to check that out, you can go to kathyheller.com slash join. Also, if you are in the LA area, a week from Sunday, October 30th, my husband and I are doing a live show at the Improv the world famous improv on melrose and he will be doing stand up and then the two of us along with his very good friend mark schiff will be doing a live podcast interview with john lovitz john lovitz from saturday night live and so many movies it's going to be really fun if you'd like to join us you can get tickets if you go to the improv's website but if you want to make it easier we've directed markandloll.com to a place where you can buy tickets from the improv and get yourself a seat. Just go to M-A-R-K-A-N-D-L-O-W-E-L-L, markandlowell.com and go get your ticket so that you can be with us and John Lovitz. It's going to be such a fun night, 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. October 30th. We can't wait. So, as I said, I'm so excited because Paul Feig is here. He's joining us today. He's a Director's Guild winning and Emmy nominated filmmaker, writer, producer, author, and founder of Feig Co. Entertainment and Powder Keg Media. Many of you are probably familiar with his cult classic show, Freaks and Geeks, which was named in Time Magazine's 100 Greatest Shows of All Time. And it got a lot of actors' careers off the ground, like Linda Cardinelli, Busy Phillips, Seth Rogen, Jason Segel. You also may know the movies he directed. Bridesmaids, The Heat, Spy, Ghostbusters. Plus, he directed so many episodes of The Office, Arrested Development, Weeds, 30 Rock, Mad Men and Parks and Recreation, among many others. And he recently directed, produced, and co-wrote a film that you can see right now on Netflix. It's called The School for Good and Evil. It's based on a young adult book series about two best friends in an enchanted school for young heroes and villains. And they find themselves on opposing sides of the battle between good and evil. It's so fun and visually gorgeous. Plus, it stars amazing actors like Charlize Theron, Carrie Washington, Michelle Yeoh, and Lawrence Fishburne. So you should definitely go check that out. Paul is also the writer, executive producer, and director of Fox's show, Welcome to Flatch, and executive producer of HBO Max's Minx, both of which have been renewed for a second season. So you should definitely watch those two. Talking to Paul was so much fun. His journey has taken many, many pivots within the entertainment industry, and it's really cool to see him align with where he's really meant to be, and he's just thriving. He's also such an advocate for telling women's stories and shining a light on those multidimensional characters and relationships. I really hope that you enjoy him. I hope he continues to do the incredible work he's doing because it's making a lot of light in the world. I can't wait for you to hear this episode. So without further ado, please welcome the phenomenal Paul Feig. Paul, oh, thank you so much. I said to you right before we started recording, you're very fancy. So it means a lot
1: that you made the time to come thank here. You. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, gosh, I just realized I should be wearing my jacket. I, oh gosh. But, but you actually look very birthday. dapper and well, you that, are
0: very fancy. So it's I, it's really fun to have you here. look like I could be
1: bartending in, in Williamsburg right now. <laughs>
0: That's also true. Yes, that would make sense. So <laughs> I I know you from a lot of the things. But what I didn't know, I learned from doing some research on you before this interview, I, I didn't know about stand-up comedy. I didn't know about the $25,000 pyramid. <laughs> and I wasn't shocked because everything you put in the world is a delight. So to find out that you're sort of write a passage story was very fun. I was like, of, of course, this is the life that he lived, a life that like you would read about, like a fake fictional <laughs> character. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because I don't think people know the man behind all these creative projects as much as we'd like to.
1: <laughs> well, I thank you, first of all. Uh it was very kind of you to say that I I do stuff that, that you like, so I appreciate that. We uh, all do.
0: Come on, I'm oh, just thanks. one of the crowd
1: yeah you know <laughs> you get enough people yelling at you on the internet, and you get worried um but <laughs> fair uh, enough yeah no i i I mean, I was somebody who just knew from when I was five years old I wanted to be in showbiz. you know i just I loved everything about entertainment, about storytelling, about making people laugh about you know anything so so I just started this you know as a kid journey to become an actor. that's how it started, really. And all the school plays, all that kind of thing. I got to do TV commercials for my dad's store. He had a, a local store in Detroit called Art Surplus. It was a army surplus store, and he let me do these really low budget, terrible local ads for it. Where, uh, you know, I think they're on YouTube actually. You can see some. of them. I did one as Groucho Marx, and did one as Tarzan. And you know, I wrote them and thought they were hilarious. And they're they're something that a sixteen year old would do. Um, <laughs> But then I got really into the idea of stand-up because there was a TV show at the time called Make Me Laugh, which was a semi-game show where a person would come out and the comedians would try to make them laugh for 60 seconds. If the person didn't laugh, they would win points. And if they did, they'd lose. But that kind of started the whole stand-up comedy scene, comedy club scene, really. There wasn't one before that. It was more you had to be professional and then get booked into these places. So you could do these open mic nights. So I started doing that because I thought that was... You know, back in, when you're living in Michigan, you didn't have any access to show right, day. Right, right, right. So, so it was like, okay, well, I can only do plays at the school or try to get a local theater or if I become a stand-up. And I like the idea of stand-up because it was so self-contained. All you need is like a microphone and a stage and an audience. And you wrote whatever you wanted. You could do whatever you want. So I would do characters and, you know, complaining kind of comedy and do music and all that sort of thing. And just pursued that for a while. But at the same time, then went off and became a tour guide at Universal Studios. So that's how I moved from Michigan to California was I, I got a chance to do that because I called the studio and said, you need actors? And they're like, well, we need a tour guide. And it's like, okay. So drove straight through with my next door neighbor uh, to get there to do the auditions for it and got it. But then I found out about USC Film School. Then I went to film school. So, you know, it was kind of this just kind of always pivoting because then I actually got a, a real career as a stand-up coming out of film school because of the $25,000 pyramid.
0: <laughs> you have to tell that story because I don't even get it. I'm like, this can't be real. Just tell us that story.
1: Well, it was, you know, I was obsessed with game shows as a kid and the $25,000 pyramid was the one I always watched. Like I would always wait for a snow day because then I mean, you could stay home, and watch mm-hmm. TV or you'd like go, oh, I'm kind of sick. Like, but I, so I would, could watch <laughs> The Price is Right and then the $25,000 pyramid. And so- When I was working right out of film school, I was an intern. Then I got this job as a script reader, but I I didn't love it because I didn't want to read other people's scripts. I wanted to be in showbiz. So 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 (laughs) they had an ad on the paper that they were always looking for contestants for different game shows. And what was the $25,000 pyramid? So I went in and auditioned and got on the show. So then I got on the show and actually had a four-day run of winning and the very last day, or the second or last day, I won the $25,000.
0: I love this. The
1: best. It, was, it was it. I mean, I'm telling you. So it allowed me to go quit my job and say, now I'm going to become a professional stand up. So I used that money to start my stand up career and, uh, and did that for five years.
0: You know what it is about you? You are so lovable. Like you have this energy, which is creative and sweet, but you're likable. You're so likable. And I just, can. Cons- I was smiling ear to ear when you were telling the story of doing those commercials because <laughs> it would have been such a joy to see you as a kid because I can't imagine how cute that punim was on your face, but like <laughs> just wh- who you are and what you do, it's all this vibe, all of it, like it's very consistent, <laughs> not like this would be, you're just like, The fact that you even had the, you had the gumption to like make that call. And then you did the next thing and you went on a game show. It's all very, very consistent with, I feel like all of the content that you create, it's just, it just is, it's from the inside out, something that just makes you joyful. That's kind of what
1: you are. Well, Kathy, I appreciate That's very kind, but I think it's, I've always been like a real optimist like, uh, like I can in feel that <laughs> yeah. because you know I, I had so many bullies and just every day would just pound you down I mean that's what freaks and geeks is all about just like how you just get pounded down every day but for some reason every morning I'd wake up the next morning and go like today's the day yeah <laughs> Today it's gonna happen I'm still that way I, I just because I, I don't want to be any other way and I kind of can't just because it's just not how I process the world because enough things have worked out. Plenty of stuff hasn't worked out, but enough things have worked out to just go, oh, okay, it can happen. But I'm also very ambitious, you know, and and that has always driven me. Um, But I've always never wanted to do it in a way that that hurts other people because I think I'd been put down and and kind of made to feel terrible. So many times in my life, I've just since I was a kid is like, I'm never going to do that to anybody. I want to make people feel bad.
0: Yeah. And I really want to highlight that because we're going to go into more of the story now and talk about some of the the big milestones. And then of course, what's coming next. But I want people who are listening to really hear that, that um, there's an undeniable uh, sensibility about who you are. And when you were talking in the beginning of the story, I'm like, he's like Charlie Bucket in Willy Wonka. You just <laughs> want to lean in. You want to root for him. You like him because he's kind. And I don't think that people equate success with those things. I think people think on some level that they shouldn't even bother pursuing this, this vast ocean inside of themselves because there's all these like alligators in front of the moat of the castle. And then- yeah. To meet someone like you, it's such a sweet spot, you know, to find out that you could be really checking all of the boxes Um, and yet you didn't lose that, that goodness. And it's, it's, it's so cool that you put that in your work.
1: Just to to, to jump on. Yeah. I had a really interesting happen when I thing happened when I was in film school because, you know, we'd make our little films and all that. But then there was these big senior projects. And that was like a big deal to get one of those. So I wrote one and it didn't get to go because you know, it, was, it was silly. It was a, a bowling musical. There you go. The, the, oh, we're, my God. Those two words
0: musical. together.
1: No, maybe someday I'm going to bring it back. But, but then what happened was then another friend of mine ha- got his. And then he, for some reason, had to leave. He couldn't do it. And he wanted me to do it. but It was a very dramatic kind of sad thing and all this. But the weird thing I had was when faced with the idea of doing this, I remember going, if I'm in charge, if I'm the director in charge of things, I'm going to have to be mean to people because that's what you always would hear is like, you fire people and you fire them and all this. And I would just, and I, I had a, like a, like a, a freak out and I actually went in and sabotaged getting the job by pitching a terrible idea that I knew was terrible because I was like, I don't think I'm ready to do this. And and so I had this weird crisis for a number of years of like, I want to be a director, but I don't know if I can do it because I don't think I've got the ability to be that person. But then I kind of learned from people I was working with like, oh, you don't have to be that person. I've worked with people who were that, but I didn't like working with them and nobody else liked working with them. And I don't think they particularly did great work. You know, so you don't have to be an asshole is the bottom line.
0: No, you don't. And I love that you're here for so many reasons, but I think this might be one of the most important things that we say on this show. So let's talk about then that first big milestone. Like what was that first turning point of, oh my gosh, I am getting paid to completely be my creative self. What was, was that Freaks and Geeks or was there something before that that ha- gave you that, that same feeling of, wow, here I am doing this. I can't believe it.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think when I started getting paid for stand-up, that was really exciting because I really felt like I was doing what I love to do and was making Huge. a living at it. Yeah. yeah. But, I, but honestly, it was when I got my first real acting job as a series regular. You know, because I was an actor for 15 years, character actor, and I auditioned for everything. It was in a lot of stuff. I mean, I, I did guest spots in a lot of stuff, you know, but never a big part. But then I auditioned for this series called uh, Dirty Dancing, the TV series. Remember, there was one and nobody remembers it. And I got to be a regular on it. And that was the first moment of like, oh, my God, I'm in showbiz now. Like, because first of all, you go... I'm taking care of for the next seven years because, you know, I'm going to be on the show. They're going to give me all the stuff. They're going to dress me. They're going to cut my hair. They're going to feed me like it's the greatest thing ever. But then the show got canceled and that would be a recurring thing that happened for me over and over, you know, over the course of those 15 years was I'd be, I was a, a regular on five different TV shows, but they all got canceled after the first season because they just didn't do well. But that was the great, great, moment of like, wow, I'm in showbiz, but then getting Freaks and Geeks, writing Freaks and Geeks, getting it sold and getting it on the air. That was the moment that turned me into kind of who I am today because it's like, oh, now I'm actually doing what I really wanted to do my whole life, which I'm creating stuff and I'm storytelling and I'm in quote unquote in charge, You you know, I did it with Judd. So that was the moment of like, oh, maybe I actually can do this.
0: And that is really incredible on so many levels. I want to tease that out for a second, but I also just want to say, it has to be said that it's amazing. I mean, it's amazing the the following that that show has and and how quickly it was there and then it wasn't. And yet your insight in the people you chose for these roles is like, it's just unmatched. It's just like hard to understand how you chose all of these people as they were just budding, you know, fledgling, like, working actors and now you you know your instincts were dead on they've all gone on to do incredible things and that show has just remained like such a classic and yet I was surprised I was like wait wasn't that on for 10 years I was like no 12 episodes how can that be it's so it's it's very frustrating when the really good content is not necessarily the thing that the networks get behind
1: no, it's nuts. I mean, yeah, we aired 12 and then we had 18 all in the four, eight, six that never aired until we went into syndicate, you know, and just started playing re and reruns and all that. But, um, it's what you dream of for a TV show. And I, you know, it's been 22 years. I, I still can't believe, you know, people watch it, which is great. I mean, it's a dream come true. Trust me. I'm thrilled.
0: <laughs> I guess the, the thing I wanted to tease out is that so often on this show, people have this question about pursuing something and then sometimes people pivot mm-hmm. and for you actually Jenna Fisher was here and she was talking about wow. her husband and how he wanted to be an actor yeah. and then he he moved into the the more behind the scenes creating, writing, directing mm-hmm. and she said that was so right on and it took a lot of humility and um, I guess what was that like for you to let go of one one particular path and go all in on a different path. And, and what would your advice be for people listening? Like, how, how do you know when you're giving up on something that's really your alignment and when yeah. you're actually pursuing your real zone of genius, when it's actually like the better fit?
1: Well, it's hard because, I mean, especially if it's like a lifelong dream, it's very hard to let go of. But it was both a slow process and then one big thing happened and then just knocked me out of it, which was the slow process was I had to go to USC, film school, learning about writing, always writing, knowing I wanted to become, my goal was to be the guy who writes directs and stars in his own stuff. You know, I wanted to be that person, but as I'd be having these roles, and they were never big enough. I always felt unsatisfied because I was always like the sixth or seventh lead on a show, you know, or just the guy who comes in for one or two scenes and does something. So I wasn't feeling satisfied, and yet I felt like well, if I got my shot, I would be, you know, a big star or whatever. But then it was when I finally the, the fifth show I was a, a regular on was Sabrina the Teenage Witch, you know, the first season where I was Mr. Poole, the biology teacher. So I was finally on a hit show, and it was like, "Oh, okay, well, the dream I have of like writing and directing and all that stuff, we'll put that on hold because now I'm going to be working for seven years and this is so great. So it almost made me kind of, made, I won't say ambition drop, but, but the, going for the direction which I kind of in the back of my head knew I should be doing because I only had so much talent as an actor. You know, I had two things I could do. I could either be the really sarcastic guy or I could be the really goofy guy. I'm not, you know, I couldn't do dramatic roles or cry on cue or anything like that. So I knew I was limited. But I always could watch all the other actors and read the scripts and go, like, I know how to make them a little bit better. Or, oh, mm-hmm. oh, I bet if I could have them do this, they would be good. But as an actor, I didn't want to be the guy telling other actors what to do. But it was always in my head. I think I could do that. But then so did a year on Sabrina the Teenage Witch, took that money. Wrote this movie called Life Sold Separately, uh, which is about four people in a field, because I had like $35,000 in the bank that I was like, I said, I can make something with this. And then I'll come back the next season and, and get the money back. Put all my money into making this movie, made it, couldn't get it in any film festivals. And then when I was in the middle of post-production, I got called from the show saying, oh, we're going to write you out of the show. <laughs> so I bankrupted my wife and I basically with this movie that then I couldn't do anything with. Nobody wanted it. But then Judd, who was an old friend of mine, we were stand-ups together, Judd Apatow, had seen it. He was like, hey, I just have this made this TV deal at DreamWorks because he was working on a Larry Sanders show. And he said, if you ever have an idea for a show, let me know. So that was when I wrote, unrelated to that, really, just I was going out on the road with this movie, trying to you know show it in this this traveling film festival colleges, and wrote Freaks and Geeks as a spec script just because I knew I needed to do something out on the road or I was going to go crazy. And that's what ended up selling. I sent it to Judd and he was like, wow. I love this. Let's make it. So it kind of went from the worst year of my life, because it was like a year trying to get that movie out there to then selling this show. But it was the moment of going, God, I'm finally on a hit show as an actor and I can still get written out and have no job security that made me go, you know what? I got to get out of this. Yeah. Doing yeah. This.
0: and And it's amazing how things line up when you're, Starting to be open to a different possibility. That's like an yeah. uncanny set of circumstances. Yeah, and if
1: I just—I got to credit my wife real quickly too, because she, for like the two or three years before that, kept going like, "You should think about directing. You should think about directing." And she would always kind of encourage me to to shadow other directors, friends of mine, or on on shows that friends of mine were running and nobody took it serious. I remember a lot of people go like, well, no, because like, they thought I was crazy wanting to be a director just because they didn't think I had the personality for it. You're too too nice to be a director. Yeah. Well,
0: Well, since you mentioned her in the research that, that we did, we saw that you've been married for 28 years. Is that right? Yeah. As
1: of, as of last week. Yes.
0: I mean, Mazel Tov, congratulations. That's Probably your biggest accomplishment, right? Let's (laughs) be real. I'm very proud
1: of it, yes. It's
0: amazing. And I was going to ask you about that anyway, but since you just brought her up, rightfully so, that's incredible to have that kind of encouragement. What would you guess is, is one potential reason why you've been able to have such a big career, live in Hollywood mostly, and have a long, great marriage? Like Those are also not things that people usually assume, go together.
1: Yeah. Well, we're, I mean, obviously we love each other very much uh, and we're really compatible. We both love the same things, comedy and all that. But I think the biggest thing out here is we're not in competition with each other. You know what I mean? It's when, honestly, when I met her, she was my manager. (laughs) So our unified goal was to get me work. (laughs) You know what I mean? And I would had a few relationships, a couple of relationships before, one in particular where it was a fellow performer and there was always a weird rivalry competition you know so when you'd get a job there was always like oh yay oh but then this feeling of like well why didn't I get a job or and I remember having a big fight once because you know I'd gotten a job some good gig and and she brought me her like headshots. I was like, well, what do I do? And I, I said something kind of like, you know, well, you know, at your level, what you have to do is this. And she just lost it. Which and she probably should have because it sounded very like at you know. your level. Yeah, You're exactly. Like, Note to self: delete, delete. That yeah, one. don't ever say that. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, but but it was just that thing of you're like oh gosh you know I've I've witnessed couples in showbiz who were like kind of going for the same thing and one would be sort of people would be asking them at a party about some success they had and the other one would start to get angry about yeah, it. it it's like sense. I thought that's just too hard to put up with. And so the fact that we're just kind of I don't know we're unified in our goal to to yeah. just get work.
0: Let me ask you this question: We've had other great filmmakers here, David Lynch, Brian Grazer. It seems like everyone we've had on the show has some kind of a spiritual practice. I mean, David Lynch, obviously his meditation is his thing, but I read a little bit about your background and funny enough, my husband, his mom is the same thing. Like we're all Jewish, but she actually became a Christian scientist. And even though my husband, I don't know, I don't think he would call himself that he got so much out of having a mom. Who gave him all of this? I mean, I think it was in his like Wheaties growing up, just like a look at the universe that was gorgeous. And in our house, my kids were raising them Jewish and we go to, I don't know, we hardly go to synagogue, but if we do, we do. Mm -hmm. But he brings so much to the table from things his mom taught him that in the beginning, I was like, what are you talking about? And now I'm like, say that again, say that again. So I'm just curious for you, Mm -hmm. do you think that that has had an effect on you and in your own life? Do you have sort of a spiritual practice or spiritual beliefs that you feel like just help you change the narrative? Because you did say how positive you've always been. I'm just curious if that's part of it. Yeah,
1: Well, I mean, you know, growing up in Christian science was very interesting because, you know, I'm not a religious person. I mean, I was when I was a kid. I was very religious. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that religion is so much not about dogma. It's very much about, even though it's wrapped up in a Christian thing, it's very... New age sort of, it's all about you, you control what you do. It's your mind, how you think about stuff, you know, and this is not Scientology. A lot of people think Christian science. No, no, it's very much not. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So, so that was always in my head of like, you can control it if if you really think positively about it in in the right way. And so even though I fell away from the religion itself because I got into actual science and all that. Right, right put the two together yeah it just gave me this ability to not depend on other people you know what I mean it's the same way you know we're famously known for not taking medicine and all that but it's the same thing I actually kind of like the fact that if I have an ache or a pain I don't immediately grab for a painkiller or whatever it's like I go okay I want to be in touch with my body and know what it's telling me so yeah I think it really does help I don't have any spiritual thing that I do now, other than I'm really just a a lover of people, you know, and and, and human energy. And that's why I love living in big cities, you know, because I want to be around people. And I really am almost like a a vampire in that way that I really draw (laughs) off everybody's energy around me, you know, and I like talking to people. And I just like being around people who are talking and having fun or just kind of being humans, you know, so I think I, I really worship the the altar of people in general. Yeah.
0: And it's so obvious and you're so great at it. And recently I was a musician earlier in my life, but oh, I nice. saw this scientific experiment where when you take two guitars and you put them on a table next to each other, if you pluck the F string on this guitar, the F string on the other guitar actually moves and oh, you pluck wow. the... C string, the C string on this one moves. And it's it's, it's the law of like resonance just in music and wow. in, in vibration. And what I think the reason I, if I could be so bold to say why you love people is because you resonate such a high frequency of joy and creativity and spontaneity and collaboration that yeah. you draw out because you your resonance is so powerful. It lights that up in other people and they like being around you. And then you get to like, sort of love them into more life. I-, I can just tell just from this short time I've spent with you. So that's really cool. And it's just such an interesting parallel because that very much is what goes on in our house with my husband and his background. And, and it yeah. just sort of like a, a worldview, not necessarily a religiosity, but a a look at life in that way. So I'm glad I was able to ask you about that. So you went on to be doing all of these things. And I'm just curious, if is there one role now, whether it's directing or writing? When you're directing, does time stand still? Or when you're writing? Or do you like them both equally?
1: I like them all equally, because weirdly, I kind of consider it all to be one job. You know, I mean, I always hate the term filmmaker. It just sounds so, so, you know, like auteurs or theory or whatever. It, mm-hmm. it sounds so highfalutin, but, but it really is. I do feel like, filmmaking being a filmmaker is my favorite thing because i as a director i love being a director i mean just because i'm in charge of everything and i get to affect the vision and i get to make sure that all works but i love being a producer because then i get to protect that and i love being a writer because whether it's a project that i get the full credit for writing or whether it's just rewriting i do on other projects that i don't take credit for i'm getting to fix it all but i'm also fixing it as a director because i know what i'm best at directing and i know what i want out of things. so it is very hard for me to kind of separate them out, but I really do love the title director. It's very, it gives me great pleasure to say, Oh, I'm a, I'm a movie director. When people ask me what I do.
0: I mean, I can understand why, especially because the work that you've done speaks for itself. And it really is saying a lot because there are times where somebody does one thing and it's so great. And that's enough. That's like diano like that's enough, but you, done so many movies over and over and over again in such a short period of time that all just land. And so what's one look at directing that you think we could learn from even in life? Like, what do you think makes a great director? What do you think is the way you're facilitating an environment or what do you think is the way you're communicating to an actor that draws out that level of creativity. What, what can we learn from you in our life that you see in directing?
1: You have to create a safe environment for the people that are working with you. You know, I when I was an actor, I would have so many times with certain directors, like I always like to like ad lib or surprise people or do a little kind of throw a joke and people didn't know. And usually it always went really well. And people liked it. But sometimes somebody would like slap you down for it. Like, what are you doing? Stop that. You know, or that's not funny or blah, blah, blah. And suddenly I would tense up. And my creativity would be cut in half because then I'm like going everything through a filter of like, oh, I better not. Of
0: course, yeah.
1: You know, so I didn't feel safe. I didn't feel like it was a place I could experiment. You know, look, I didn't want to be the guy who just like just goes off script and goes nuts. But at the same time, I want to add my personality to it. And so, you know, when I'm doing my movies, I really create an environment where people feel they can try anything and are not going to get slapped down. Because trust me, there's plenty of times people will do something. Oh, can I try this? Oh, sure. And they'll do something. And in my head, I'm going like, oh God, that's terrible. Like, why did they want to do that? I don't like that. But I don't go, that was terrible. Don't do that. I go, okay, cool. That's great. We got that. Let's try this or let's try something. Because then I get back to the editing room and so many times that take I thought was terrible is actually the best take. Wow. Because because it was purely from them. It just wasn't what I had in my head. You know, And, and so my advice is always like, be Confident enough to have no confidence in your vision, you know. That's why I hate the term "auteur theory" and auteur, all that stuff, because it's not. It's bullshit, you know. If, if I'm dictating every performance to somebody, then they're just doing some watered down version of what I think it should be. And why did I hire them? It's not Shakespeare, you know. I mean, we're, you're not you're not parroting beautiful words hopefully we're presenting beautiful words and it worked really hard and got the script right but then that person has to make it their own when i was a tv director i would work with you know these showrunners and occasionally they would say like that person's got to say the joke just like this and it's like well that person's mouth doesn't work the same your way your mouth works Mm -hmm. you know so let them interpret it even if it's even if they're not changing the words let them just have a different type of thing and every time in my movies when i've worked towards getting somebody to do something exactly the way I heard it in my head, by the time they do it, everything they've done before that is so much more interesting to me. By the time they do exactly what I wanted, I'm like, oh God, I don't even, even like that anymore.
0: <laughs> That's fascinating. And I, I think we can all learn something about that in our own lives, whether we're parents or whether we're just working on any collaborative project, like creating that safe space. And then like trusting that maybe you don't even know what you like. Maybe there's something you can't even see. So speaking of all of these incredible gifts that you have directing and writing and producing, you're doing that again, the school for good and evil. Tell us about this and why you think the audience might enjoy it.
1: Yeah, it's my first foray into the world of fantasy, but my whole goal (laughs) in my career is just to do every genre there is, you know, I just, I love genre movies and then there's so many genres I go like, oh, I I think I could have an interesting take on that. And fantasy's always been that, but it was a script that was sent to me and I read it and just, I fell in love with the story of these two women and their friendship because I'm really drawn to female friendship stories. It's just kind of my favorite thing. I see that. Yeah. Yeah, I just love it. I just, I just think it's, you know, all my friends were girls growing up. I was close to my mom and I just loved those relationships, but it was also then on top of having this great message and this great friendship in it. And just the way that it resolves is so beautiful. I think it was a chance to get to create a, a world, uh, which I've never gotten to do. I mean, with Ghostbusters, we kind of did, but it was still based in our world. And I've just always wanted to build something from the absolute ground up. So this, we got to design. I mean, we, you know, we did, over 800 original costumes, you know, that we designed and made and you know, everything from the shoes to the jewelry, everything was made. And then, you know, created the look of this world based on Art Nouveau. Cause I had so cool. done, done spy. Yeah. In, 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 um, in Budapest and fell in love with that style. So, you know, so it's a real visual feast to watch. And, and it's really got a kind of a very sweet story of of friendship but also about the human condition and you know it, it takes place in a world where there there's a school that trains her- fairy tale heroes and villains so either your soul is all evil or you're all good and then you do these things well you know the message is basically no we're we're not all one thing we are a mix of everything, of good and bad, of right and wrong, of you know, strong and weak. And I just think today that's such an important message when everything is so polarized and everything is so black and white. I agree and with you. Good or your bad. Yeah. So all of that added up to just be like, I really wanted to make this movie, and I'm so so proud of it. And I spent two and a half years working on it. So.
0: I love that you just added all of that depth to it. It's first of all, you, it sounds so cool visually and I love the girls and I want to ask you a follow-up question about women and why you champion women so much, but that, that message that you just offered is so powerful. And I didn't grow up watching star Wars cause I was born a little bit later and I went back and watched them now as an adult and every movie i'm crying because to me it's so kabbalistic it's so it's so much about this world it's like this choice we all have every day we all have an ego we all have a sabotager we all have an anti-self all of us and just making those little choices in our day and to be able to see that in storytelling form i think sometimes is the most powerful way to to get it so i love that you you took that and ran with it i'm really excited to watch It, it, it. it
1: And shout out to Soman Shanani, who, who wrote these books, you know, there's there's six books in the series and, and it's, you know, it was a big theme for him too. And and I, I kept him very close during all the development of this movie. And, uh, you know, we're very much a lockstep on that. So uh, yeah, they're really, it's a nice message for today. It's, <laughs> it's just...
0: very, very cool. and And I want to follow up and ask you about that, which is what you said about women, I mean, that's not something everyone says, you know, and I I think especially now, uh, I was just watching Deepak Chopra yesterday. He did a live broadcast talking about women and what's going on in Iran and how much we, we need to really get behind women and we need to change sort of the masculine sort of approach and have more of this feminine, like, like instilled into our leadership and into the world. And I mean, it's beautiful for him to say it, but most of the time, people are not making those choices to make movies about women and, and female friendships. It's not been the thing, uh, mm-hmm. but it really has been for you for so much of what you've done. And that says so much about you. I mean, so much. And uh, I want to know more about that. I mean, you said something like, you know, you were close to your mom and you had a lot of girls who were friends of yours growing up. But mm-hmm. I, I think it it really is going so much further than you even know, you know, what you did with Kristen Wiig and all those women, you really like, you elevated them in such a giant way. And um, it means a lot to people like me. It means a a huge amount. So I want to thank you for that. And what is it that keeps you coming back to that dynamic that you want to showcase it?
1: It's kind of all I care about storytelling wise. I, I, I feel like I just grew up my whole life either watching just completely male stories of the hero and they are the male comedy, which is very aggressive sometimes. And then also watching the women in those movies have terrible roles and very, be one very forced to be very one dimensional. When I, and then when I got out to Hollywood and befriended so many female comedians and, and actors and all that, and then would see them pop up in movies and their roles would be terrible and they weren't, allowed to be funny and they were just mean and you know the shrewish girlfriend or whatever it just doubled down on my desire to tell these stories anyway because I think it's what I just always related to I just my brain doesn't think in terms of stories about men because most men's stories are so locked in on I don't even know how to put it like there's a self-importance that that is in it that always bothered me. There's a kind of bully quality in it sometimes because I had a lot of bullies growing up, and I think it's just, I just like the way that women relate to each other, and and, and my relationships and friendships mostly with women have just been my favorite ones because I didn't feel there was things I was supposed to know that i don't know i mean even as trite as being like i'm not into sports you know <laughs> it, like you get around a bunch of guys and suddenly it's all this hyper specific talk and I, i'm so like oh yeah oh yeah huh? I, I, i'm what i'm a master at sounding like i know what i'm talking about during a sports conversation and saying nothing Literally, because I can just like, oh yeah, oh well, he's great. Oh, well, yeah, I grew that, you know. And I'm just sitting there like, I don't care about this stuff. I just don't care, and I don't fault them for liking it. It's just I'm not comfortable. I'd rather be sitting talking about, you know, I don't anything from people to fashion to, you know, I don't know. I I just have no real interest in male driven stories. I don't mind watching them; they're fine. But well,
0: there's enough of them. There's a lot of them. So we exactly, exactly. But it's, it's really cool, and um. I have to ask you, like when you're in the room and Melissa McCarthy is doing her thing, how do you not die? Like, I don't know how (laughs) I would, I'm dying. I can't even breathe. Like, and you're sitting there like facilitating this. And what is, what is that like for you? And it's not just her, obviously there's so many incredible actresses and actors that you work with, but I mean, that must be the joy of all joys to be in the room.
1: It's the greatest. But I ruin a lot of takes. I am famous for ruining takes because I'll just burst out laughing, you know, or people will see me off to the side like this, like try covering my face, try not to laugh. Like Melissa's always like, Paul, I can see you or I can hear you. (laughs) It's like, okay, I keep moving video village further and further away.
0: I feel like certain people are like superhuman in certain ways. Like she commits on a level that like I, I don't know people have that capacity.
1: Huh? Yeah, I've always said the funniest people, their DNA is programmed to be funny because the funniest people I've worked with can't not be funny. You know, if you look at Kristen, if you look at Melissa McCarthy, or if you look at like Chris Farley, you know, or Will Ferrell, you're like, they're just funny. They just have to show up, which is always so sad when then they decide they want to be a dramatic actor. (laughs) You know, you're like, oh, please. Because as an audience, you're like, you're just waiting for them to be funny, which I guess is kind of a curse, but they can't help not being funny.
0: Yeah. My friend was on jury duty with Will Ferrell (laughs) and it was a disaster. And the judge kept yelling at him and he was like, I'm so sorry. And he was like, do so you did it again? And he's like, No, no, I didn't mean to. And he's like, Stop it. And he like escorted <laughs> him out of the courtroom. And, it, and my friend was like, I didn't know if he was gonna get arrested. Like, he couldn't not make everybody die. And it was so serious. It's like a murder trial. They're downtown LA. Like,
2: the judge,
0: <laughs> the judge was like, I've had it with you, Farrell. And he was like, I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm really trying. I promise I'm trying. And I was like, you could you could just see, like, obviously that's what would happen. It'd be, yeah. of
1: course. I mean, it's just, it's a like a otherworldly thing.
0: So speaking of other, you know, worldly things, we've had three characters from, three actors from The Office here, Rain Wilson, Jenna Fisher, who I mentioned, Brian Baumgartner. I love the show. I think the whole world loves the show. What was that world like, stepping into that world, being a part of that? It seems like it was just... Once in a while, something very different happens on TV. And I think that oh. was something that just really struck a chord in people's hearts on a level yeah. that is unusual. What was that like for you to be a part of that?
1: Well, it was great. I mean, it was so exciting because, you know, I felt very much like an outlier, especially in the 90s, just because I was, you know, trying to be in comedy and I was an actor and a stand up and all that. But comedy was at a very presentational point then, you know, it was very big and broad and very jokey, which I enjoyed watching, but I had no interest in kind of doing that. It wasn't my kind of thing that I was drawn to. I like very behavioral, Mm -hmm. you know, I just think people are funny. And that's when we did Freaks and Geeks, you know, it was like, there's no jokes in here. It's like, no, the joke is Bill, like just turning going, huh? You know, like that's funny. (laughs) So when this one came up, that docu-style, and I had done Arrested Development, which was in that docu-style, but that was a little more amped up, still hilarious. But oh, good. I like that this one had it was even more pure to the docu style, and and then Steve Carell. I was such a huge fan of Steve's from the Daily Show. I always thought he was so funny on that show. And so when they cast him in that, you know, I truth be told, I had been approached as a lot of people were in, in town to do to turn the uh, the British Office into a TV show, and I turned it down immediately because I was like, why would you take that on? it's too hard. Like that show is so funny and so good, but it's very British in the sense that it's very mean. You know, it's very, David Brent is so mean in that show, which they tried to do the first six episodes of of The Office. I mean, if you watch those first six, Steve Carell is really mean in them, but they're hilarious, but it's it's too mean for an American audience. And so getting in there, that was that first real season was the season right after 40 year old Virgin had come out and everybody was in love with Steve because he was so lovable in that. And it was like, how do we, transfer that into here and so once the decision was made like oh well michael scott will be he's still like a jerk but he means well you know he's like a well-meaning guy who's just kind of a an idiot but occasionally he's not occasionally he actually figures stuff out but he's still kind of a bore but he doesn't he's not mean-spirited about it he thinks he's hilarious and and so that was really what kind of was the turning point for it and this was just a joy i mean i you know i directed i think 19 episodes and was lucky enough to do some of the biggest ones and do Steve's final episode, which was just—I've I mean, never I been could on a cry set. Just was,
0: thinking of it, I could. i would never been
1: on a set that was more heartbroken. That, that was the funny. I don't know. I've, I've told this story before, but like you know, the whole thing. Every scene we'd get to that was like Steve's last scene with somebody, everybody be in tears. You know, and everything was so serious. And I, I have to go. Like, all right, everybody, stop. You, as actors, love Steve Carell. You, as workers of the office, don't really like Michael Scott that much. <laughs> You know, so like we always had to go, okay, remember, it's Michael Scott. And, and so we got through it, but it was just devastating. I mean, I've got a picture somewhere of Greg Daniels just like laying on the, you know, the, when you walk in the front of the office, that couch, him just like laying face down on the couch, just completely devastated, you yeah. know. And, and when,
0: when Brian was here, we were both in tears because he told me that he went through, you know, he interviewed all of you guys for this book and he said he would, he would play this last line where Jenna Fisher says, there's, there's beauty in ordinary the things. Isn't that really the point? Yeah. And um, I think what you said, a lot of people relate to. I had bullies in seventh grade. It's horrible. And mm-hmm. I feel like the office was like, oh, those are all the nice kids. Like those are all the kids who you could just warts and all, like you could just be yourself with them. And it made people feel welcome to the table. And oh, yeah. um, we need that so badly.
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, it was such a fun set to be on because of that, you know, and that's what with our show, Welcome to Flats, that's what we really, we have, I feel that same thing there, because we're off in this small town in in North Carolina, outside of Wilmington, and we just kind of are just have these documentary cameras up and you know, and it's just supportive and fun. And people kind of get to do their thing. And, and it's really lovely, you know, I mean, th- that comes across. In these things and i think that's why people really you know love the office so much it, you know it's comfort food i always say like i want stuff i do on tv i want it to be comfort food i want my movies to be a party and i want my tv shows to be comfort food
0: yeah they totally are and it's such an extension of what you embody tell us i know that your show welcome to Flatch, just was renewed for another season for people yeah. who don't know the show tell them why they have to get on and watch the show
1: Yeah, it's, you know, it's based on a a British show called This Country, um, which was just this uh, documentary out in the Cotswolds of these two cousins who are best friends. And they're just, you know, kind of the town screw-ups. And it's just funny and sweet and, again, total comfort food. It's just a small town with these kind of eccentric characters. But, you know, nobody, we're not making fun of anybody in it. You know, we just love them all. And so, yeah, we did the American uh, version where it's, it's set in a small town, Flatch, Ohio and it's just about the, these two cousins and then all the people in this town and it's it's just a super funny show and our second season is on now just just started up and Jamie Presley just joined the cast too and she's awesome it's fun comfort food if you love the office if you love parks and rec you know you'll love this one
0: you've done so much and you keep creating and i'm just curious like when you hit your head on the pillow at night <laughs> what makes you keep creating what are you hoping to give to all the people cuz you love people so much what is it that's driving you to keep making things
1: just i want to keep entertaining people i want to keep making people happy <laughs> you know i i get very frustrated with the industry. Sometimes it's just things. thing. I, I don't like this time of year because this is Oscar season, you know? And so I'm a member of the Academy. So I'm in, you know, part of the, the whole thing, but there's something about, Oh, these movies are better than those movies. That is really, I find really not cool, you know, because this time of year makes filmmakers like myself feel kind of crappy, <laughs> you know, we've of like, Oh yeah, we're not, what we do isn't like going to win any award. Yeah. You know, but then there's this whole thing of like we're making you know movies to try to win awards. I don't like that at all because I go uh-huh. now you're not your goal is not to entertain the audience. Your goal should always be to entertain the audience, no matter what. And the biggest lesson I had because you know I was I was definitely influenced by that in the beginning of my career. Like oh I got to do something you know that's, that's Oscar worthy or whatever was when Bridesmaids got nominated for two Oscars. I mean, I guarantee none of us are saying, oh, maybe let's make this and we can probably get nominated for some Oscars. Like, no, Melissa McCarthy's shitting in the sink is not exactly the kind of thing... You have happened when you're chasing chasing the statue, you know, but it made me go, oh no, we just we made the most fun movie we could to entertain people, and we put the messages in that we wanted about friendship and you know and had the emotion in there, and did everything that a movie's supposed to do. You know my favorite movie of all time is it's a wonderful life because I think that movie does everything a movie's supposed to do, it makes you laugh, makes you cry, makes you happy, gives you leaves you feeling great about people. And that's, so that's all I kind of care about. And so, you know, when we say about entertaining, that's all I want to do is just keep making things that will entertain people in different ways and bring something new into the world. And then I get to have fun doing something new and and putting my take on a different genre or whatever. But I want people to have more stuff to make them happy.
0: I love you, Paul Everybody does. (laughs) And I'm just sitting here thinking like, the only movie that's a comedy that I can think of that won Best Picture, and I'm not a trivia buff. But I think it was Annie Hall, right? That's yeah.
1: Some people do consider uh, Shakespeare and Love to be a comedy, but that's debate okay. deba- amongst people. <laughs> I am you too confirm or deny that.
0: But you think about what a commentary that is on culture <laughs> and society. That, like, if you if you're gonna win an award, you have to make Schindler's List. Like, you yeah. have to make something that is so sad that is so heavy. It's like, we're addicted to suffering. And we think that things that are dramatic and heavy are amazing. And meanwhile, the world just needs so much to feel good. And you genuinely make people feel good. Like the office is not something that would go in the same category for people in their heads as something like, like, like Schindler's list. And yet it's like, how much good does it do? How much good does it do? And I hope that changes. That feels ridiculous.
1: Well, the problem is as as somebody in comedy, and we can, you know, all of us in comedy can secretly sit around and complain about this for hours. But I, I will say the one thing is for a drama to be impressive, it can work really hard. You know, it can just throw a lot of stuff at you and have crazy, you know, beautiful shots and the acting's big and all this stuff. And you go like, Wow. If you do a comedy like that, it looks what we call in the business sweaty, which you see it working really hard. So Comedy to be good has to look effortless. And once something looks effortless, people go, Oh, well, that was easy. You know, and I've had I can't tell you how many people go, like, what? You just show up and everybody's funny. It's like, yeah, yeah, okay, but you know, Steve Carell never won an Emmy, never won an Emmy because I would have people would say to me, like, Well, that's just him. He just shows up. It's like, you realize how hard that man works. How Michael Scott is not Steve Carell at all, but he made it look so easy, and he would always lose to like Alec Baldwin, which was who's very funny but had a very showy, big character wow. that he did, and, and so it just shows you like we're never really gonna get it, get those awards unless we do something that's big and overwrought, but then it's not gonna be funny because it's gonna just feel too sweaty.
0: That is so fascinating and it's hard to hear that he never won an Emmy because when yeah. I was uh, four years old, I would sit in front of the TV and Mr. Rogers would come on and he would look at me, right? And he would say, uh, you're lovable. And I would feel this feeling of like, I'm going to get through today. Yeah. And uh, that's what Steve Carell did for me watching The Office. It was like this giant heart of a vulnerable person who no one oh. ever is willing to be that vulnerable. Yeah. And all of a sudden you just feel like, oh, I think I'm okay. And mm-hmm. like the fact that he never won an Emmy for that is yeah. so upsetting. One
1: like, golden uh, globe, and that was it. One golden globe that was
0: amazing. It. Well, I am I'm so grateful that you are you. Um, you. just <laughs> sparkling confetti and sweetness and lovable <laughs> yumminess everywhere.
1: Trying, tell everybody,
0: <laughs> no, you're just the cutest. Um tell everybody where they can check out School for Good and Evil. I believe it's coming up on Netflix. Yeah,
1: October 19th, we premiere on, on Netflix. Yeah, and you can see us there. We're going to be pretty much only there. We're in a couple of theaters just so we can qualify for awards, but only only because I think our technical stuff is so amazing, our costumes and our music and our sets and all that. So I, I want all my team to have a shot at getting you know some kind of nominations for what they did because their work is you'll you'll see when you see the movie how good this movie looks you're so Uh, good
0: i love that i got to connect with you and that my listeners got to connect with you the person that has brought us all of this joy because you're such a mic drop (laughs) i hope you you have the the lens on you because i just feel like so much of what you pour into all of this is really who you are and um it's medicine people need this people really need
1: this Look, I'm very, very lucky to get to do what I do. And I did. I didn't do not take it for granted for one second. My only thing that drives me is the fear that they won't let me keep doing it. So I, I am not jaded. I am the least jaded person you will probably ever meet because I'm just, I'm the kid from Michigan who just goes like, I can't believe I'm in show business. I didn't think it was possible.
0: Well, you're a delight. Last question for people who are listening right now who have some dream and mm-hmm. feel like it's too late, they're too old, they're not talented enough. What's one thing you might want to say to them.
1: Just do it. (laughs) I'm not an ad for Nike. Just do it. There's no reason you can't do it now. When I was starting out, sure, you had to have a ton of money to buy film. You made it. You couldn't get it distributed anywhere. You couldn't get it out there. Now you got your iPhone can shoot a movie that looks a thousand times better than what I spent $35,000 on 16 millimeter. You got the internet. You can put it out on the internet and they can get seen or you can go on social media. You can just start doing things on TikTok or do them on IG. Like if you have a voice and you have a message, you want to put it out, you can do it now. It's never been more of a meritocracy in this, in showbiz ever because I mean, there's people in, in the shows that I do that I cast off of. The internet, uh, the star of, of Welcome to Flatch, Holmes, is somebody we found on Twitter who she just did funny videos in her car. She would just put up a camera and just do these characters. My assistant at the time, Greg Lubin, came in when we were trying to recast this thing. And he's like, I think I found the lead for the, for the show. And it was her. And then also there's a, a Aaron Bowles, who is also in the show, is somebody, she was doing videos where she's putting costumes on her plants, you know, and, and Oswald one day, he said, this girl's really funny. And I saw her and I, I got a I cast her in the show, you know, so it's like, and, and it's never too late, my God. So it's just, if you have a voice and a take on the world, just make sure what you're putting out there is who you are make sure it's good you know and then start doing it there's no reason not to do it this is the best time to want to get into show that is
0: the coolest thing and not the answer i thought you were going to share and that is just (laughs) so exciting to think that you pulled these people off of just because they had the the fortitude to just show up and, and put this in the world. I mean, that is just so cool. So everybody who's listening, take a note from Paul Feig. That is
1: Get out there. really, Get really
0: encouraging. Paul, <laughs> you are the best. You are literally the best. I enjoyed this immensely. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Kathy. It was an absolute pleasure. And, and thanks everybody for listening to this. If you made it through. <laughs> the
0: best. Oh my gosh. How sweet is Paul Feig? Okay. Here are the takeaways. Number one, things line up when you're open to a different possibility. Number two, be unified in your goal. Number three, you can control your mind if you think positively about it in the right way. Number four, create a safe environment for the people that are working with you. Let them try terrible things and experiment. Number five, be confident enough to have no confidence in your vision. And number six, just do it. If you have a voice and a take on the world, then make sure what you're putting out there is who you are. There's no reason you can't do it now. This is the best time. Thank you so much for listening to the show. I know that you have a million things to be doing and you're here. So thank you. It means so much to me. We have so many good episodes coming up. I know I always say that, but we really, really do. So please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify. And if you enjoyed this episode or any episode, take a second right now and share this podcast with a friend. You can email them the link or text them a link, or you could post about this on your Instagram and you could tag me at kathy.heller. And you can also tag Paul. He's at Paul Feig and it's spelled F-E-I-G. And finally, if you want to get into my signature program so that you can unleash the faucet of all the abundance and all the beauty and all that really high vibe energy that is really available to all of us, you can join abundant ever after right now go to kathyheller.com slash join this is the least expensive offer it is also on extra discount right now and it comes with a lot of bonuses so get in there right now if you want to join me for what I think is my greatest of all the hits kathyheller.com slash join you can be a part of abundant ever after and if you're in the LA area, Go grab your ticket so you can join us October 30th, a week from Sunday. My husband's doing stand-up. John Lovitz is going to be there. We're doing a live podcast interview with John Lovitz on stage at the Improv in Los Angeles from 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. October 30th. That's the day before Halloween. You can go grab your tickets. I think they're about $20 and you can go to markandlowell.com to get your tickets. Mark is M-A-R-K-A-N-D-L-O-W-E-L-L markandlowell.com. Grab your tickets. And uh, I'm just so thrilled. Today and tomorrow, we are doing a live event in L.A. I can't wait to share a little bit of the audio from that with you guys over the next few weeks. You'll be hearing snippets from Andy Grammer, Candace Nelson, Amy Purdy, and some of the other beautiful conversations worth having on stage today and tomorrow. It's just so much fun to do these live events. I'll definitely be looking to do more in the future. So keep your eyes peeled for dates coming up. And uh, next week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, we're doing a retreat at my house and that is just so exciting. So I just love you guys so much and I continue to look for opportunities and ways for us to come together in person because it really is the best. I hope you have a beautiful weekend and I will talk to you Monday.
2: ever seen How can we settle searching for some kind